Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. In the NOCO is supported by Blue Federal Credit Union, with locations from Denver to Cheyenne, helping members tap into the power of community. More information at bluefcu.com. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. On today's show, since the first cases of coronavirus were reported, one group of people has been hit harder than any other group. It's like check, check, check every risk that you could potentially have. These groups generally did. Coming up, we'll take a look at the economic factors behind the disproportionate impact of COVID-19 on Hispanic communities. Plus, we'll learn about a different kind of COVID test, one that's akin to scratch and sniff. All that and more just ahead. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Henry Zimmerman. And I'm Erin O'Toole. Last week, Governor Jared Polis announced that all 33 red-level counties, that is, the counties where coronavirus is more widespread, would move to the less restrictive orange level on the state's COVID-19 status dial. The move was made regardless of specific COVID-19 metrics in the individual counties and has caught many public health officials in the state off guard. Larimer County is one of the 33 moving down from red to orange. Tom Gonzalez is the public health director for the county, and he's with us now to talk about what these changes will mean from a local public health perspective. Tom, welcome back to Colorado Edition. Thank you for having me, Henry. Where does Larimer County stand right now in terms of its coronavirus numbers? Well, oddly enough, on Sunday, we did just meet all three metrics for moving from red to orange. So for Larimer County, we would be moving to orange regardless of the announcement from the governor. So we are excited here in Larimer County. The great work sacrifices all of our businesses and all of our residents and visitors have made. We've we've dropped our uh, case rate almost from 1,000 per 100,000, just below 350. Our percent positivity is dropping. It's now just around six. And the last update from our hospitals is they are treating less number of COVID-19 patients. And more importantly, our IC utilization has uh, declined as well, which frees up beds and healthcare workers for all those that may need to use utilize the hospital. Well, Tom, we've talked to you a handful of times on the program throughout the pandemic. Those numbers, or I guess all that information seems pretty positive, no? It, it does. I think the next week is real critical. We need to see if there's going to be a spike after the holidays. We're sure hopeful it's not. We hope we follow the trend of Thanksgiving where we actually plateaued and then declined. I'm urging our uh, residents to still wear their face coverings when out in public, keep it to one household uh, per individuals. Now we can go uh, to limited dine-in in our restaurants, limited use in our gymnasiums, but let's keep it to just our one household and then always wash our hands. Where is Larimer County at in terms of vaccinations right now? Is the plan going ahead according to schedule, or has there been any challenges you guys are facing? Oh, it's been going right on schedule, working with UC Health, who's been our hub, as well as Banner and uh, many of our other providers. I think the biggest challenge is communication. Uh, We've been able to expand 1B, but we still have limited vaccine. And so we're, we're working with all of those that fit in 1B, and that's including our 70-year-olds or, or older, and then our, um, our essential workers, including our educators and frontline workers, making sure they complete a survey, they get uh, in the system so that when more vaccine becomes available, then we're able to get them 
uh, scheduled through our electronic health record. So we can get them scheduled for the two doses as well as working uh, with UC Health and administering the vaccine with all of our first responders. Uh, we got the first dose out, now it's the second dose. And, and really where we're excited is the federal plan on getting everyone vaccinated in our long-term care facilities, including the residents and the healthcare providers. Tom, I want to go back and talk about some of the holidays that we saw at the tail end of 2020. We talked briefly about the sort of plateau that we saw following Thanksgiving. I'm wondering what you are kind of expecting out of the Christmas and New Year's uh, sort of break that we just got through. Are you expecting another plateau or is there just no way to predict this? It's very difficult to predict. We follow the three major holidays. We've seen uh, spikes after the 4th of July and a significant spike after Halloween. We, we certainly don't want anything like that. And then the, then the plateau decline of Thanksgiving. Uh, I'm very hopeful that uh, our all of our residents, knowing we were in red, knowing the severity and seeing uh, the caseloads uh, you know, where they were, as well as the number of people treated in our hospitals and our capacity, ICU capacity at one point reached 90%, uh, very concerning. So I'm hopeful everyone saw that, which uh, they did during Thanksgiving and maintained that during the, the Christmas and New Year holiday. Though, well, time will tell. Within the next week, we will see if our numbers continue to decline or they may take an uptick. Larimer County's Level Up application was approved by the state just in time for Christmas. That is the program that allows some businesses that meet higher safety standards to operate with restrictions one level looser than wherever their county is at, at the state's color-coded dial. How does moving the entire county down to orange affect that program? What came out of the state health department right after Polis's announcement of, of everybody moving to orange is that you would need to show seven days of, of meeting all the metrics in orange before you could then uh, have certified facilities move to yellow. So looks to us like Sunday was the first day. Uh, congratulations to us all that we were able to get out of red of all metrics, get down to orange. We're one of the few counties that's done that. Uh, so it would if that continues, if we can maintain those rates below the level in red, maintain in orange, then by Sunday, Monday of next week, uh, we could then start uh, working with establishments to be certified in the yellow category. Now, some things to consider. We've learned that the, the virus typically spread, of course, respiratory droplets from different households. So we really want to maintain the separate household parameters we have within our Level Up program. And our restaurants are doing a very good job with that. And so are all our other businesses, our gymnasiums, our movie theaters, you, you name it. Lots of businesses have been impacted. But we really want to keep that limit to your household until we can get through this next couple of weeks and see exactly where our trends are and see how much viral load is within the community. Tom Gonzalez is public health director for Larimer County. Tom, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Have a great day. Since the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic, Latinos in Weld County have been hit harder than any other demographic, representing nearly 40 percent of the reported cases. This week, we're examining some of the factors driving that statistic and meeting some of the people affected. KUNC's Adam Reyes has more on the complex and longstanding economic factors that have put these communities at greater risk. 
Lately, conversations during family dinner in Erica Cardenas' home are focused on how everyone got COVID. Well, we were there this day and we started feeling symptoms this day. All eight members of the household tested positive for coronavirus in early December. The family did everything right, Cardenas says, staying inside except when absolutely needed, wearing masks, sometimes multiple layers, and gloves when they do leave home. I guess since everybody was working and everything, um, we can figure it out. Her mother and aunt work in a meatpacking facility, and they were the first to get positive tests. Dad and uncle work in an oil field. Her cousin works in retail, and Cardenas herself is a farmer's market manager for the city of Greeley. We were scared. We were just thinking about other people and how um, we affected other people. The family quickly started contacting everyone they spent time with recently, mostly co-workers, to warn them. Across the house, symptoms have been mild, loss of taste, some coughing, fatigue. We were not too much at risk, right? I guess we live on that mentality that it's not going to happen to me, right? But it happened. I think there's all these layers that sort of play together for the perfect storm. Dr. Michelle Barron is Senior Medical Director of Infection Prevention for the University of Colorado Hospital System. Hispanic people represent about 30% of Weld County's population, but nearly 40% of its COVID cases. No other demographic in the county is experiencing that kind of disproportionate impact. It's like check, check, check every risk that you could potentially have. These groups generally did. Hispanic people in Weld County and across Colorado are more likely than white people to work in so-called essential jobs. They're also more likely to live with multiple roommates or relatives, rely more on carpools or public transportation, and have less access to health insurance. There are a few members of Erica Cardenas' home who don't have health insurance, but overall, they are financially stable. We have been able to buy stuff for us to eat. We have been able to pay rent, but I know people that um, have been struggling a lot. Experts say that for some, the impossible choice between economic survival and family health is at the core of these factors. Kim Cordova is president of the United Food and Commercial Workers Union in Colorado. What workers have felt is that they've been treated as sacrificial or, you know, fungible widgets um, as just objects in, in these facilities for the sake of production and profit. Meatpacking giant JBS is a prime example. Erica Cardenas's mom and aunt work there. They are two of at least 570 workers at the Weld County facility who have gotten sick. Six have died. The federal government fined JBS for failing to protect its workers. But in a written statement to KUNC, JBS disputes the idea that it has neglected health and safety at any stage. Cordova does not just blame companies like JBS. She also blames local government. Somehow it's a constitutional violation to try to enforce safety. But nobody's thinking about these workers' right to pursue life or to be safe at work. Weld County has been ignoring state public health orders, encouraging residents to feel safer at work, while the state and public health experts beg people to stay home. The county public health department and commissioners declined to be interviewed for this series. Dr. Mark Wallace led the county health department until he retired in May. He says getting companies and officials to take action on COVID was difficult, but... I've been around this rodeo enough times that what we end up coming back to are these basic issues that are gargantuan. Issues like housing, type of employment, access to health care. It was such a structural issue that has been so historic that it couldn't be corrected overnight. He's clear that he's not saying efforts to mitigate the disproportionate spread of COVID in Hispanic communities aren't happening or are hopeless or shouldn't be expanded. 
He just wants to make sure that coming out of this and planning whatever health looks like moving forward and in anticipation of the next big major pandemic, that we really spend the time to learn from this because we've seen it unwrapped and there's no sugarcoating it anymore. Looking back, Erica Cardenas isn't sure her family could have avoided getting sick. Uh, so some way or another, we, we had to get it. But she doesn't see her family-filled home as a risk factor. We choose to live together. We like living together, I guess, as Hispanic. We try to stay together as long as possible. Cardenas says the virus spreading through their home hasn't changed how comforting it is for her. Her family has mostly recovered. A few have been able to get back to work. But she adds they're all very worried about playing any part in further spread of COVID in their community. You never know how, how much people you were exposed to and how much people you infected. I, I am really sad. Adam Reyes, KUNC. Tomorrow, we'll continue our series on the impacts of COVID-19 among Weld County's Latino communities with a look at a critical factor driving infection rates, public health communication. You can find more from this series at our website, KUNC.org. You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. Since the first confirmed case of COVID-19 was announced over a year ago, researchers, medical professionals, and people from ordinary walks of life have worked to develop tools to help us combat the spread of the virus in different ways. One critical tool in the fight is testing. And while having accurate test results is important, it's not necessarily the most important thing when it comes to wide-scale COVID testing. That's according to several researchers at the University of Colorado who have developed a unique way to detect whether someone may have the disease without relying on laboratories. John Ingold has written about this for the Colorado Sun, and he joins us now with more. Hey, John. Hi, Aaron. So first off, many of us, myself included, find it surprising that accuracy isn't necessarily as important as we might think. Why is that? And under what circumstances would that be the case? So what we're talking about here is when you're doing uh, like mass surveillance testing. And accuracy is still important. You want to get it right. But the challenge is when you're doing a lot of tests or you're trying to, uh, to, to test across a broad population frequently is that accuracy comes with uh, time. So it takes time to run these tests in a lab and get the results back. And it comes with expense. And, and so the, uh, the thought here is that by testing more frequently with tests that are maybe not perfect, but are uh, easier to use, easier to administer, can be done less expensively, that you can sort of layer these test results on top of one another and end up basically coming up with, with the same kind of accuracy that you would get from doing a, a one-off test that's, uh, that's more accurate just in and of itself. So focusing on something that can be done frequently, that's quick and cheap and not too difficult to, to administer. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, you came across a couple of researchers um, from CU Boulder and elsewhere who decided to tackle this. I wanted to ask you first how they got together. How did they meet? The two researchers at CU, they work with uh, something called the BioFrontiers Institute at CU, which has been active in uh, studying the pandemic. And uh, they specifically are focusing on mathematical modeling. So they look at uh, predictions for how you track the course of the pandemic and, and what sort of various interventions, what those impacts are. And then uh, they teamed up with a guy who works at the uh, Yale University uh, School of Medicine. He's a professor there of cell biology. And he is uh, he's an undergrad alum from Boulder. He grew up in Boulder. So 
they kind of had that connection. And then this guy knows development of uh, new technologies. So he, uh, for instance, has developed uh, new microscopes that are able to do uh, cell imaging. And he's kind of entrepreneurial in that way. And so they came up with the You Smell It test. Why did they decide to uh, develop a test that's focused on the sense of smell? I think most of us know that uh, uh, anosmia, so the loss of your sense of smell, is one of the weirder symptoms that comes with a coronavirus infection sometimes. And uh, if you were to ask people who uh, know they have an infection, did you lose your sense of smell? You might get 30 to 50% of people saying, oh, yes, that, that happened. There's some research that shows or suggests at least that uh, if you uh, administer a, a test that, that specifically is looking for the loss of sense of smell, that you can find uh, that symptom in upwards of 80% of people who have an infection. And one of the key things here is that it uh, can be present in people who are otherwise asymptomatic. So you think of some of the other uh, like very, very basic, simple uh, screening tools that people use, like a, a fever check. You think of the, the people with the temperature gun standing there and taking people's temperature. Fever is not necessarily all that much of a, a common symptom. Uh, and it's also, uh, it's less specific. So fevers can occur for all kinds of reasons. Whereas uh, a sudden unexpected loss of your sense of smell uh, as a result of, you know, not as a result of like facial trauma, but just as, you know, something that just happens, that, that's pretty uncommon. So it, it ends up being a little bit more of a specific symptom for a coronavirus infection. Now, how does the test work? It looks honestly like a, a child's game. It's a little scratch and sniff card. It has these five little uh, scratch and sniff windows. The, the windows are unlabeled. And then there is a, uh, a QR code and you have a phone app and you scan the QR code. So then now the app knows what test you have and you just go around scratching and sniffing. And uh, there's a little multiple choice uh, test for each little uh, scratch and sniff window to, to ask you, you know, what did you smell here? And it's very common smells like mint, vanilla, strawberry. And then there's also an option to say, well, I didn't smell anything takes about, you know, less than a minute. And at the end, it'll give you a, a pass or a fail on your test. This kind of test would not replace PCR testing, which right. is still the gold standard, pretty much. Researchers say this could be a really useful surveillance tool, though. Exactly right. So it, it's a tool designed to flag people who may have a coronavirus infection. And then you would send those folks for follow-up PCR testing just to actually confirm it. Uh, the idea here, again, this is for like thinking like big, big populations of people. So think large workplaces, college campuses, places where you would ideally want to test people over and over and over and over again to try to create a safe environment. The idea is that they'll be able to be produced for as little as 50 cents per card so that the cost of these would be really, really cheap. They're not invasive. They're really simple. They're kind of fun. So the idea would be that this is just a, sort of a, a low friction way of doing testing for a, a large community and then hopefully flagging cases early on and getting those people isolated before they, they spread infections to others. Where is the test in, in the process? Are we going to see it rolled out anytime soon? So this is kind of interesting. So if, if these researchers just said, hey, we came up with a fun scratch and sniff game and now we're going to go sell it on Amazon, they could do that right now. Well, because they're trying to tie this to coronavirus and making this sort of a, a coherent coronavirus screening tool, they've now tied it to a disease. And that makes this little scratch and sniff card a medical device that has to get approval from the uh, FDA. So they are, uh, they've applied for an emergency use authorization, which I think we probably all are familiar with now. There's been a lot of those getting handed out. 
and uh, they're waiting from the FDA to uh, see what, what comes next. John Ingold is a reporter for the Colorado Sun. You'll find a link to this story at our website, KUNC.org. John, thanks so much, and uh, hey, Happy New Year. Yeah, Happy New Year to you, Aaron. Thanks. It may be a new year, but until the pandemic is over, many of us will be starting it the same way we spent much of last year, inside. So this seems like a good time to get a few suggestions for some good books to help us get through the winter. Megan Schmidt is the marketing manager with Old Firehouse Books in Fort Collins, and she joins us now with a few ideas. Megan, welcome to Colorado Edition. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. First, I want to start off with a recommendation that you have in adult fiction. I am already intrigued by the title, The Haunting of Tramcar 15. What is this one all about? So The Haunting of Tramcar 15 by P. Jelly Clark is one of my personal favorite novellas. And I went with novellas for adults because if you're anything like me, you have been having so much trouble focusing and concentrating and reading has just become like, it's, it's a great escape still, but it's so hard to focus on and it's so hard to do. I have not been reading this year half as much as I normally do. And so my sort of refuge has been novella because they're bite-sized, but they're still very gripping. They're wonderful. Um, and Haunting of Tramcar is one of my favorites. It's an alternate history sort of magical Cairo situations. So it's got um, some really cool Egyptian overtones. There's a mystery at its heart. Um, the whole kind of conceit is there's this investigator who investigates magical disturbances. So he he goes and he's he's investigating this haunted tram car that's been killing people. Mm. <laughs> I'm already in. <laughs> Next, going from sort of an alternate history to real history, in nonfiction, you have Alexander Hamilton by Ron Chernow. Why is this on your list? Kind of on the opposite end of the spectrum. If you, you know, the novellas are great for bite size, can't concentrate. If you are not having any trouble concentrating, which is some people who have just been reading up a storm, Alexander Hamilton is, it's, it's something like 800 pages, but it's worth it. It's the one that the musical is based on. Um, it's comprehensive. It's insightful. It's fun. You don't really think about history books as being fun, but this one is actually written in a way that it's very engaging. It kind of pulls you along regardless of whether or not you think history is boring. <laughs> <laughs> now, of course, I don't want to leave teenagers out. Um, you've recommended a book called When Dimple Met Rishi here. Um, so tell us about this book and why it's on your list. So When Dimple Met Rishi is the first book that was published from the author Sanja Manan. And she's semi-local. She's in Colorado. We love supporting Colorado authors. Uh, this is her first book. It's a contemporary romance about um, Dimple, who is Indian-American, first generation. Um, and she goes to college. Um, and she finds out that her parents have been wanting to set her up with a guy, um, kind of matchmaking. And she doesn't want that. She's very independent. Um, and she runs into this guy on campus and he spills her coffee all over her. And she's like, well, he sucks. And then she finds out that that's the guy that her parents have wanted to set her up with. <laughs> they end up working on this project together and they find out that they have a lot more in common than they thought. And it's a really sweet romance. It's got a perfect happy ending. Now, um, for the younger kids, Tristan Strong punches a hole in the sky. I have to say I'm already feeling a little bit inspired um, just reading that title aloud. 
Tell us more about this. Yeah, this is my favorite middle grade book that I think has ever been published. It came out last year and I have been obsessed with it ever since. It's by Kwame Mabalia, who is a wonderful human being in addition to being an author. And um, it's about African-American folklore and West African mythology. So if you know the Percy Jackson series by Rick Riordan, you know, he kind of wrote Greek mythology, but in a modern setting with modern kids dealing with Greek mythology. He took that concept and started his own publishing imprint. It's called Rick Riordan Presents. And he's hired authors of color to write stories about their mythology. Kwame Mavalia is doing Tristan Strong Punches a Hole in the Sky. And the sequel is Tristan Strong Destroys the World. That came out this October. So it's kind of like a really great double feature. They are amazing. They kind of dig into grief. They dig into the Black experience. They dig into trauma. They dig into the power of stories and the power of words and how a kid who is really scared can still stand up and fix his mistakes and make things right. Um, They're amazing. And they're really important, not just for Black kids to see themselves as the heroes, but for kids of all colors to see a Black kid stand up and be amazing. Megan Schmidt is with Old Firehouse Books in Fort Collins. Megan, thank you so much for, for talking with us. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It was really fun. That's our show for today. Tomorrow on Colorado Edition, we'll take a look at one of the key factors driving infection rates across Weld County's Hispanic communities, public health communication. I'm Erin O'Toole. And I'm Henry Zimmerman. Our show is produced with help from Ray Solomon and Adam Reyes. Brian Larson is our executive producer. Thanks so much for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC.